Hi everyone, this is Alejandra, one of the producers of Every Knee Shall Bow. Mike and Dave are unable to record right now, and we ask you to please keep them in your prayers. In the meantime, they wanted to keep sharing content, so we will keep releasing more of Mike's live talks. Just a disclaimer that the audio quality of these talks isn't the best since they were recorded live, but we hope you enjoy them. Thanks for listening to Every Knee Shall Bow. God bless. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I'm not joined by Dave the Body Van Vickle. We are going to keep going with our series, so every week on Tuesday nights, I teach a class for my adults from Brandon Bott's wonderful book from Word on Fire, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to Church. We go through the story of St. Monica and how we can use her as a powerful intercessor, how to really have a prayer life, how to have our intercessory prayer life, and how to fast. That is the majority of today's talk. We go through and break that down. Then... After the commercial break, what we do is we lay out how to equip yourself with the Bible and the catechism in order to effectively answer those you're trying to draw back to the church, their objections, their doubts, fears, worries, whatever it might be. I want to thank our fine folks over at Ascension for being such amazing and supportive partners here in this quest to make the church more evangelistic. I like this. Uh, This was originally a blog post from Brandon Vaught that became part of this chapter. You probably know the pattern. A smart, gifted boy leaves home for school. He makes new friends. They spend most of their time partying, chasing girls, and embracing new philosophies. The son becomes drawn to a trendy religious cult. We've all been there. Uh, you You have more fun as a member, but you make more money as a leader. That's an office joke about being in a cult. Anywho, uh, eventually he moves in with his girlfriend. They have a child without being married. The boy's mother can only sit by in despair, heartbroken over his choices and helpless. The only thing she can do is pray. That's the story of many Catholics today and maybe your story. Parents think they're alone in facing these sorts of troubles. But this pattern isn't a new one. It stretches back for centuries, in the case above, even more than a millennium. It's the fourth century story of St. Monica and her young wayward son, Augustine. By the way, it is pronounced Augustine. When you're talking about the grass or the city, it's Augustine. That's when it becomes feminine. That's my little annoying bugaboo thing. (laughs) We'll celebrate St. Monica's feast day tomorrow. Oh, wait, so that was like last week or something. So it's worth remembering how she looks. Whoopsie. I was going to give this out last week and I was like, oh, wait, no, St. Monica's next week. The chapter, not the anywho. Whoopsie. So, hey, her feast day was recent. So let's, uh, um, what we need to do is we need to realize in the great story of St. Monica. Do you guys know the story of St. Monica? Wonderful story. Kind of tragic. So she married a wealthy pagan. Um, He was known for his horrible temper. He would go into fits of rage and uh, violence, sometimes taking it out on his wife. Uh, Although St. Augustine in his confessions remarked that her kindness was so um, incredible that it often soothed his anger. Um, But uh, it was not a peaceful home, peaceful house, and he wanted his son to be rich and famous, you know, successful in the eyes of the world. His son, uh, Augustine, was, uh, <laughs> I just did it, I just did it, that's embarrassing, I was just testing you. <laughs> you all passed, you all passed. <laughs> well, that's how the good Lord serves me humility, 
His son, Augustine, would go on to become a brilliant rhetorician, which was a skill that was much in um, demand at those times because, you know, politics were open debates in public squares and you could sway a populace. You could go to war if you crafted the right speech. Eventually, Augustine would become a Manichaean, which is a branch of the Gnostic heresy. And Gnosticism was the spirituality of the day back then. Gnosticism holds there's a good God, a bad God. The bad God is the God of all things material. The good God is the God of spirit. So it has this heavy platonic elements. If you ever studied Plato back in your philosophy 101, Plato tended to view the um, soul as trapped in the body, which is not a Christian view, but tends to get imported into Christianity. But within Gnosticism, it was light and dark, good and bad, right? It's kind of like the force, right? There's an equally light and equally dark side. And there were two gods, rival gods, and who is going to win, right? So the idea of the Gnostics were, well, water, good, brings life, hydration, wonderful, but you can also drown, therefore it's evil, right? Everything material. So it's funny, the Gnostics were funny. So you could have the extreme Gnostics, and they would go one of two ways. If the body didn't matter, if the body was evil, but your soul was good, then you could do whatever you wanted. So some Gnostics, when you reach the higher echelons, were just crazy orgies. Right? They're like, well, the body doesn't matter. But then the other Gnostics, so those were the fun ones. The other ones were the ones where they would fast themselves to death because they hated the body, right? And uh, so St. Augustine belonged to this Manichaeanism, and he was heavily persuaded by it and would mock his mother's ignorant Christianity. Um, you know, he mocked the Greek, the lack of polish, except for basically Luke, Luke's gospel, the lack of polish. There was no... Homer or, you know, the Iliad or the, there's no Sophocles in the Bible. You know, it's all, it's not high literature to him. And so he mocked it for years. Eventually she would, after her husband died, she would, and he became Christian. She would follow him to Italy from North Africa to Italy. Uh, and she prayed and prayed and prayed for someone to help her after 15 years of praying for him every day through many tears to help her in the conversion of her son. And lo and behold, he meets a man named Ambrose is the famous conversion of St. Augustine, who would end up writing some of the most influential and brilliant literature and theology and philosophy uh, in all of Christian history. Writing in the fourth century, he wrote so much that writing in the 18th or 19th century, one of the popes remarked, all of theology is but a footnote to Augustine. No one man, even St. Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas was an Augustinian. No one man affected theology in Western Christianity more than St. Augustine. His conversion through someone like Ambrose of Milan was instrumental, was an answer to a mother's prayers. So what um, Brainavot does in his wonderful book, Return, uh, someone had a copy of it. Yeah, we just hold it up real quick so people can see the cover. It's a wonderful book, Word on Fire Press. Excellent, excellent. Again, I would encourage you to get the book. It is an excellent book. It has a lot of good arguments that we're going to go through, but obviously we can't go through everything. Here's some of the lessons. Don't stop praying for your child. When Monica complained that Augustine would not listen to her admonitions, that he become a Catholic, you ever feel like, go to church. When are you going to church? Are you going to mass? Right, my mom says that all the time. Are you going to mass? With that leading question, I love that. Ambrose urged her, speak less to Augustine about God and more to God about Augustine. Right, that was the line I used that last week, but I just think that is such a money line that we should have tattooed on our hearts. Speak less to Augustine about God and more to God about Augustine. She took his advice and never gave up. Even when things looked dark, eventually her persistence paid off. Uh, number two, the second thing to learn from St. Monica is to pray for an Ambrose to step into your child's life. 
Uh, Matt Marr, he's a Catholic musician. He's actually coming to College Station in a week or so. But he one time said this, he had this great line where he said, the church needs more Andrews, right? And if you remember in John's gospel, Andrew is the one who introduced Peter, Simon, uh, to Jesus. And the church does need more people like that. And so we need to pray, number one, we need to pray for the courage to be Andrew, but we also, for people in our lives that have walked away from the church, we need to pray for an Andrew in their lives, right? And I say that all the time, that the Lord might not use your words, but that doesn't mean he's not going to use anybody's words. There might be someone out there that can speak to his or her heart, right, in a way that we can't. It might be something on TV, on YouTube. It might be Bishop Barron, you know, whatever. Uh, might be a relic reveal video. It might be something that we don't know that begins to build trust. And then from trust, openness. And then from openness, uh, seeking. And then from seeking, maybe, maybe they lay down their nets and they follow Christ, right? That's what we want. So please remember that just because they might be tuning you out or me out, it doesn't mean that God still can't get through to them. Okay, so pray for an Ambrose in their lives. Third takeaway is that you can ask Monica's intercession for your child. Uh, and this was funny. I think this is somewhat interesting. Uh, they surveyed parents who were praying for their kids that had left the church. They said, well, how do you pray? And they, 76% said they pray to the Father, and the others were God the Son, Jesus Christ, the other was God the Holy Spirit. The least common response was the saints. I'm not really going to be nitpicky about this. <laughs> I don't really think that's a loss, but uh, no, I was praying to God the Father. I didn't sneak, get all sneaky with a saint. But we do have these glorious saints, right? That you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this. Obviously, in this classroom, you know, 80% of you are here because of your adult child who left the faith or children. And so when we begin to think about this, we need to be Andrews and Ambroses for one another. We need to be interceding with and for one another. But we also have the great communion of saints. We have the communion of saints. The book of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. One of the things I love is when Father David Huss chants the, what we call the Roman canon, the, the long form of the Eucharistic prayer. It's Eucharistic prayer number one. Um, traditionally, it's called the Roman Canon. It's 1,900 years old. When he chants it, you go through that huge list of saints from the first century, second century, third century. I always elbow my daughter, Cecilia, because her name's in there. I'm like, are you paying attention? No? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, but that prayer like calls to mind specifically, repeatedly, that we're surrounded by the saints. So let's not uh, lose sight of our Catholic faith that we can, that we can do this, that we actually have people in, in God's stadium cheering us on and, and interceding for us. We're not alone in this. They're cheering us on. They're advocates before the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this parable I have on the back, Luke 18. Will someone read that for me? Luke 18, 1 through 8, someone with a loud voice. The parable of the widow and the unjust judge. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her, or she will wear me out by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? 
Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? See, that's an intense parable. That's an intense parable. So, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right? So that's the point of the parable. The word parable means to compare, so we get the word compare, two things. The two things are the widow who won't shut up and you before the throne of God. And he's saying, this is how parables are supposed to be exaggerated. So here's the exaggeration. Here's an unjust judge who fears neither God nor man. He doesn't give a rip about whether or not his verdicts are right, good, true, or beneficial. He's going to do whatever he wants to do. But because of her persistence, he'll give her the verdict that she deserves. How much more will your father, who is righteous, who is just, who desires the good, respond to those who call out to him day and night? That's my question for you. Again, I challenge you 10 times more than we ever challenge our kids in these type of things. I challenge you. Do you cry out to God day and night? Because I'm going to tell you, if you do it, if you do it often and you don't do it alone, you don't isolate yourself from community, you pray with one another, it becomes a powerful voice that the Lord cannot ignore. And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? These are the words of Jesus. Will God the Father vindicate his elect? Now, again, we turn back to the words of DMX, the great American prophet and rapper, who in the voice of God said, I may not come when you want, but yo, I'm always on time, right? It's a good understanding, works really well in the prisons. I may not come when you want, but I'm always on time. God's timetable is not our timetable. I'm sure Monica wished to speed up God's timeline by about, uh, you know, a couple thousand percent. But when God moved, Augustine was converted and became the great Saint Augustine. So we don't always perceive the mysteries of God's will and God's working, but we need to surrender to his timetable. His timetable is not our timetable. But Jesus is saying, is God going to delay if we seek his face day and night? Okay, so let's seek his face day and night. Now, right now we're going to pray this prayer. I think it's lovely. I think it's lovely. You don't have to pray it out loud with me. I'll pray it out loud. You just pray it silently. I don't, we don't need to work on timing. Uh, <laughs> but Brandon Vaught wrote this prayer. I love this prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. So let's just picture uh, the person or people that we are here for, right? And we're going to do some mental prayer. We're going to engage our imagination. We're going to picture them in our mind's eye. Say, Monica, I need your prayers. You know exactly how I am feeling because you once felt it yourself. I'm hurting, hopeless, and in despair. I desperately want my child to return to Christ and his church, but I can't do it alone. I need God's help. Please join me in begging the Lord's powerful grace to flow into my child's life or my nephew's or niece's life or my neighbor's life or my parents' life. St. Monica, ask the Lord Jesus to soften his heart or her heart. Prepare a path for his or her conversion and activate the Holy Spirit in his or her life. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Now, I wanted to print this out because I love that prayer. When I first read that in the book, I was like, that's money. That is a money prayer, and I you know, have it folded up. I pray for my brother and his, his return. Um, but we all got skin in the game, right? We all got skin in the game. We all have a reason why we're here. So I don't know what your prayer life is like, but it's time to take it up a notch. Are you with me? This is the next chapter. He starts off talking about St. Monica, and then the next part is, okay, let's start to put the Monica principle into effect. So we're going we're gonna to go full Monica today, not half Monica, okay? <laughs> 
St. Francis de Sales, an incredibly busy evangelist. You know, he personally evangelized 60,000 Calvinists and brought them back to the Catholic Church. He taught, if you don't have time for prayer, you don't have time for everything, for anything. Half an hour's prayer each day is essential, except when you're busy, then a full hour is needed. The bishop said to Mother Teresa one day when he was in a limo with her, she said something about his prayer life, and he said, I'm too busy to pray. And she leaned forward and got right in his face, all like, you know, four feet, 10 inches of her. And she said, then you're too busy. You know, it's scary to think of bishops who don't pray because they're quote unquote too busy. Here's an unchangeable fact. This is a quote from Brandon Vaught. You will never just have time for prayer. You must make time. I have found that to be an ironclad law of human existence. Television shows just come on, right? Like you can just binge Netflix so easily, but prayer takes effort. Right? Prayer takes effort. You have to make the time. Ask yourself, isn't my child or niece or nephew or parent, aren't they worth the time? Aren't they worth committing five to 10 minutes a day to praying for him or her to return to the church? Right now, determine, right now, okay, right now, not later, not after this class, right now, determine when you're gonna do the 10, five to 10 minutes of prayer for them. Now I want you to pull out your phone if you use it as your main reminder or calendar app and put it in your calendar or reminders right now. Okay, maybe you don't use your phone. I'm not judging you for not doing it, but this is what you have to do. The most important principle of having a good prayer life is concrete and specific resolutions. You meditate on the passion of Jesus and how he says, Lord, forgive them for they know not, or Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and you marvel that Jesus could forgive the very people who are in the process of brutally murdering him, and your heart is stirred. You do the saints of the cross. It's Good Friday. You're moved. You have great feelings of forgiveness and mercy, but you don't actually go out and forgive and be merciful to anyone in reality. So what you do is St. Francis de Sales in his wonderful book, Introduction to the Devout Life, he says, uh, when, you, when you begin to meditate, you make a concrete and specific resolution, right? You actually do something that you can practice daily, as in tomorrow, I am going to stop praying and I am going to go to work tomorrow and I'm going to seek out that guy that I can't stand and I'm going to pay him a compliment or I'm going to, you know, whatever it might be. What is something that you can actually actualize in your daily life? Not, oh Lord, one day I'm, I'm going to have a great prayer life. That's like saying, I'm going to win the lottery, right? It never just happens, does it? Right? Do you ever daydream about winning the lottery? You ever do that? You ever see that $219 million sign, that Powerball thing? You're like, man, if I had that money, I would blah, blah, buy a house, I'd pay off debt. You'd, all of a sudden, you'd become charitable, right? You don't dream all this. Not me, man. Three yachts and an island and adios. Tell Shannon I'm going to Canada. I'm not. I'm going to the Bahamas. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. Why do I need three yachts? Because. Okay. Right, so it's funny. We daydream about winning the lottery, but we never actually buy a dang ticket, right? That's what it's like in our Christian prayer life. We daydream about our kids coming back, but we never actually make a concrete and specific resolution. I will pray 10 minutes a day, every day, until they return to the church. See, that's the thing, is we gotta have specific and concrete resolutions. Oh, I'm gonna be more forgiving. No, you're not. I've met you. You're terrible, right? Every time... You know, Mitch comes to my office, I will be forgiving and merciful, right? Like that's what St. Francis de Sales is saying. It has to be specific. You have to specify what you're gonna do or else you'll never do it. It has to be concrete, something really and truly actionable or else it'll never happen. And it has to be something you can put into practice the next day, that week, the next week, right? Something specific and concrete. Any questions? Okay, so my thing is this, right? We all desire 
but do we work? This is how we work. First prayer. I don't know what time of day is best for you. For me, it's in the morning. I wake up 30 minutes earlier so that I can pray while my wife sleeps. She begins to wake up. I make her a cup of coffee. She gets her prayer time. The kids come down. This is an ideal day, right? Kids come down. She has her 20, 30 minutes. I've already had my 20, 30 minutes. So whatever. And then we sit down and we have our second cup of coffee together, right? That's generally how our days go. I have to guard her time with the Lord, her alone time. She needs to have her own relationship with God. I, I, I always do this. Okay, so when I do marriage prep, you need to have your alone time with the Lord. She needs to have her alone time with the Lord. And then, mm-hmm. and then y'all need to come together and have your couple time. Boom! God builds the house, right? So when you begin to have this understanding, like I guard my wife's time with the Lord. That's my goal, right? Usually it involves me yelling incessantly at my kids, but I guard her time with Jesus because it never just happens, does it? For others, it might be right after lunch or right before you're going to bed. For my dad, you know when it was? It was when he moved to Houston, was able to take the park and ride bus. 30 minutes of sitting there, 45 minutes whenever it would break down, maybe two hours. Uh, and he had that time. He had a prayer book that he would pray and he would just read. For, it might be different, but my question for you is, okay, Uh, The next best thing, first, concrete and specific, okay? So this is number one principle. Number two is consistency. Now, what is this consistency? Time of day and duration. If you do not have a consistent prayer life, if you do not pray regularly at the same time for the same duration, don't overblow it, right? That's what we do. Oh, I'm going to be the best. This is so important. I'm going to pray for an hour every day. Have you ever prayed for an hour every day? No. Right. Guess what? You're going to pray for an hour for about three days in a row. All right. And then the universe will conspire against you. You'll get a flat tire and then you'll never pray again. Take 10 minutes. Start with 10 minutes. Maybe it's right after you you, you eat lunch and you sit down for some quiet time. I have a buddy who was on his feet for about 12 hours a day with his job. He said, how can I be mindful of God? I'm so busy. I said, set an alarm on your phone, six noon, six and pray in our father. And just let it happen from there. Make sure you're just putting yourself in the presence of God at 6 o'clock in the morning, at noon, at 6 o'clock in the evening. Those are, you know, when he wakes up, when he's at home at dinner and at lunch at work. Like, boom, okay, I'm going to take a moment. And then guess what happens? Nine times out of ten, if you're consistent, one our father generally becomes five to ten minutes of prayer. And then you realize, oh, I actually do have time when you make it. Uh, Even after you initially commit to prayer, though, the battle isn't over. One priest I know says, about three lines up from the bottom of that paragraph, one priest I know says, you want firsthand proof that there are dark spiritual powers at work? Simply commit to praying for 10 minutes every day and watch how the whole world conspires against you fulfilling that, right? You ever do that? Yes. This happens all the time, right? You're like, I got this. I'm flowing, and then you stay out too late one night, you accidentally don't set your alarm, you sleep past your morning time. I mean, that's not me, I always go to bed early, but you people. Now, what happens when you don't know how to pray? I don't know about you, so I'm just assuming you're rookies at prayer, okay? I'm just assuming that. If you aren't, please take what I have with a grain of salt, or maybe just toss it out the window because it doesn't apply to you. But for many people, when they start to pray, they immediately get distracted, When you start to quiet yourself, what happens? The 500 things that you've been ignoring because you've been so dang busy all of a sudden present themselves for your attention. Uh, Hello, we have a dry cleaning at two. We have a water bill. The mud district, it wants its money. Oh, and Gormley, 2017 called, it wants its taxes. So all of this stuff, true story, all of this stuff 
is coming at us. And the funny thing is, because we're never quiet, solid, I call it the three S's of solitude, stillness, and silence, because we never give ourselves that time, when we get it, our brain, which is like this, all of a sudden gets to go, hey, well, well what about this? You've been ignoring this. You've been ignoring this. Father David Huss gave, I, I thought it was the perfect thing. I have never been told this. I was like, you ignore distraction. You gently place it down and move on. He said, whenever I go to adoration, I just have a stick it notepad or something. And he says, and whenever these things pop up, I'm like, okay, great. And he says, I just write it down and now it's gone. It's no longer my short-term memory being like, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, right? And he's like, I can just put that down and I'm done. So when you turn in silent prayer, what happens is they're constantly, what do you call it? The, the monkey brain is going nuts. And it often spoils the rookie's experience of mental prayer. Because all of a sudden, when you finally get still to hear the voice of God, all just the natural, the flesh begins to scream out at you. And the world begins to say, hey, but what about this? And what about that? And the devil surely doesn't want you turning to prayer. But don't call him surely. Doesn't want you turning to prayer. So what we do is when we come to this time, I'm going to give you my pro tips. This, this uh, Brandon gives you four traditional prayers now, I'm going to tell you another reason why I love being Catholic. Uh, a study came out back when I was a youth minister in 2000, and, oh, what was it, 2006? An, an Episcopalian youth minister posted it, and it was essentially the study that kids who are going through depression in liturgical Christian traditions tend to fare better because they don't have to make up their time with God on their own, you know, on their own creativity because they don't have any more. It's gone. The depression robbed them of that creativity. So having things like traditional prayers or specific psalms, or for us, the rosary, novenas, the chaplet of the divine mercy, those are things that you can rely on in order to help your brain order itself so that you can get focused. Let me just tell you, this is a great line. Bishop Barron quoted it from um, the guy that wrote the book, The Seven Story Mountain, Thomas Merton. And he said, saying your prayers is an excellent way to start praying. What does he mean by that? You ever done a holy hour, right? 15 minutes go by and you're like, well, there's an hour. Oh, dear Lord, it was only 12 minutes, right? <laughs> Why is that? Because we prayer takes time. This is a cultivated habit. Instead of having things go to us and spoon feed themselves to us, it requires a lot of intellectual effort, right? We are not Buddhists when we pray. We're not trying to drain our memory and imagination and intellect of stuff to focus on. We are trying to pinpoint what to focus on. So what do we need to do in these, in these times? Well, it is excellent when you got that background noise going. You sit there and you pull out a rosary. Now, maybe you're not super into praying the rosary, but I'll tell you what. When you pray the rosary, the Tetris pieces of your brain tend to just slow down and fall into place. You do the Divine Mercy Chaplet. You do Novenas. We have set prayers that have been handed on to us throughout the life of the church. Why not turn to the saints in order to learn how to pray? After all, they're kind of good at it. Now, that's for vocal prayer, right? You understand what I say when I mean vocal prayer. Vocal prayer can be writing. It's often when you talk silently, when you say words with the rosary, you can do prayers with other people, liturgy of the hours, the mass. Those are forms of vocal prayer. You got it. This is the, this is the milk. Okay. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient for an adult. Okay. You have to pass beyond vocal prayer and you have to go eventually to the stage of what we call mental prayer. And within mental prayer, we have what we call meditation. And then what we have is called contemplation. Okay. Meditation. Take scripture, a small passage, draw into it, spend your time on two verses 
and just seep in it. The rabbis called it rumination, right? A ruminant, right? Like a cow chewing the cud. He takes it, chews on it, swallows it, spits it back up, chews on it, swallows it into one stomach, out the other, right? That notion of chewing on the word of God, chewing on a thought. So for instance, let me give you from my own prayer life. I was reading the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, where it says a wise man is he who, the man who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. For when the rains fell down and the floods came up and the winds beat against the house, the house stood for it was on a firm foundation or was on the foundation of rock. The man who hears these words of mine does not do them is like a fool who built his house on sand. Winds, rains, floods, then the house falls. And I remember I had that passage, nothing more than that. And I just read it over and over and over again for about 30 minutes. Not weird, creepy, like saying it, oh, yeah, like I'm not being weird. I'm just sitting there, I'm thinking about, I'm engaging my intellect. This isn't magic, okay? This is you being a human person in relationship with God who has spoken to you through scripture. And so you're taking it, you're actively using your intellect to think about it. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, let's apply this to my life. Where is the firm foundation of my life? It's Jesus Christ. Great. All right, that was a quick answer. Is Jesus Christ really the firm foundation of my life? Or do I have a nice, neat, manicured house, but underneath, whoopsie, that's sand. And I felt at one moment, after about 30 minutes of just thinking about it, this is just me. You don't have to believe what I'm going to say next. But I felt like the voice of God said foundation, that my foundation was Jesus Christ, but I hadn't really built much on it. I was like, that makes a lot more sense of my life, that I have Christ, but man, what, 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 what virtues, skills, what, what have I done for the kingdom? What have I done to build? I'm still recycling the same prayers and falling on my knees and being all dramatic. I don't know if you know, but I'm kind of an emotional guy. Just being all dramatic and doing all this stuff. You know, oh God, convert me, help me, change me. Oh, I'm lost, right? And it's like, okay, okay, I got you. You have your house. You have my rock. You have my life. You have my teaching. Now build. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, so the wise man is one who hears these words of mine and does them. Okay, so you know what I did? That's when I more or less began my project of what we call Lectio Continua, which is just a continual reading and rereading and re-re-re-re-reading of the Gospels. What happens when you get to the end of John? You start back at Matthew. So that is a way of going deeper into the mystery. That's called mental prayer. When you meditate long enough as a Catholic, you then pass... As long as you're getting your moral life, your virtue, you're growing in virtue, you're being a generous person, right? You can't grow in your prayer life if your moral life is stagnant. You cannot. St. Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church, says, if you are still overcome by mortal sin, you will never achieve contemplation. Okay? Right? So, St. Francis de Sales, you want to grow in holiness? All right. Do you habitually mortal sin? That's your first dragon you need to slay. Then do you sometimes mortal sin in other areas? So you're addicted to pornography. Your habitual mortal sin is lust. Go full out and slay that dragon. Okay, so you slay that dragon. Sometimes, I don't know, what would be a random mortal sin? Sometimes you perjure yourself. I don't know. Like you commit another Okay, we'll address the fact, why do I do this thing? Why do I, I've gotten rid of this 
huge thing that was in my life for years. Now, why do I do this thing? Or why is this a huge temptation for me that sometimes, maybe it's drunkenness. Why is it that sometimes I just need to get obliterated or whatever it might be, right? I'm not talking about myself, okay? I'm talking about you, okay? Why, <laughs> why do I do, whatever it might be, I don't know what it is, right? You could insert your sin here. And then you begin to say, okay, I got that out of my life. I've achieved stability. My life is built on the rock. Then it's, what are those venial sins I dip my toes into over and over again, right? The habitual venial sins. Then you get rid of that. St. Francis Hill says, you'll never be sinless, right, in this life. You won't be totally free from venial sin, but you can remove habitual venial sin from your life. You can actually uproot a whole lot of stuff. And now we know that the Lord can bring a lot of healing to the root causes of those sin, if you're bold enough and strong enough to actually address these deep down root issues. So what ends up happening is, as you begin to get your moral life in order, your prayer life gets in order, the more you pray, the more your moral life gets in order, and you feel this, I'm gonna use it, I'm gonna use the word, synergy, right? And you have this forward momentum that is greater than any one thing in and of itself. Okay, so are you doing this? Next question, how often do you fast? How often do you fast? A Roman Catholic ought to fast every Wednesday and every Friday, okay? Every Wednesday and every Friday, that is the standard fast. Most of us don't know that. All we know is the old time Friday no meat, right? <laughs> Friday no meat, now it's just Lent. Ah, you forgot, don't worry about it. <laughs> like I'm eating lobster every Friday during Lent. <laughs> So much suffering, right? No. So why do we fast? We fast to be hungry. Why do we fast? We fast to be hungry. Why? Because you're hungry for God. You realize that your hungers cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. Food and drink are legitimate goods. So if you are struggling against sin, right? If you struggle against sin, you want to know how to increase your willpower? Deny yourself food and drink. Why? Because if you fail in that, you haven't sinned. Like, I'm going to fast. I'm not going to, for 24 hours, I'm not going to eat anything, right? And then you're like, well, brownie, right? <laughs> if you fail in that, you haven't sinned. Okay, you haven't. So then you redouble, right? Okay, I am going to do this, right? When we fast, we fast because we desire to increase our hunger for God and to detach ourselves from earthly goods. Not to hate earthly goods. That's Manichaean. That's a Gnostic. They're called earthly goods for a reason. They are good. They're made by God. Wonderful. Right? But we all know that uh, too much of a good thing can hurt us. So when we fast, Jesus says, make your face. Don't look like the hypocrites who make their face all gloomy. Oh, man, what's going on? You look sick. Oh, I'm fasting. It's, uh, <laughs> very difficult. And very uh, skilled at fasting. You know, he says, wash your face. You know, look presentable. Don't sit there and be like, hey, guess what I'm doing, everybody? I'm fasting, baby, right? So when we do it, why do we do it? We do it because we want to be hungry for God. We want to detach ourselves, but also because it's a sacrifice. The Roman Catholic Church for the first 500 years fasted every Wednesday and Friday. Now in the West, our fasting is pathetic as a community. It is pathetic. Vatican II did not change the Friday discipline. It added because... For the first time ever, third world bishops were able to be represented more equitably equitably, and said, uh, well, what if our people don't eat all week, but they get a hold of a piece of meat and it happens to be Friday? So he said, okay, if you have to eat meat on Friday, then offer a legitimate and equal sacrifice in some other area, right? Now, all of us maybe could avoid meat on Fridays. 
So stop eating meat on Friday for the rest of your life, not just on Lent, forever. Stop doing that, okay? Now on Wednesdays, you should probably stop eating meat on Wednesdays too. On Thursdays and Mondays, you should only eat an entire cow. But other than that, right? <laughs> Gotta live that carnivore lifestyle. No, but what I mean by this is we have to get back. The church lost something great when it lost the communal abstinence. It really did. It really, really did. And so what I want to recover is one, a complete abstinence from shopping on Sundays. That includes brunch, right? A complete absence as much as possible. You want to be a revolutionary, stop crap, stop doing all this consumerism on a Sunday, okay? Number two, on Fridays, 100%, one meal, that's it. No meat on Friday and probably the same thing on Wednesday. But you know what? Baby steps, right? Does anyone have any questions or complaints about what I just said? <laughs> yeah, think of it. We would fund so many uh, high school pro-life essay contests for the Knights of Columbus if we have Fish Friday every Friday, right? <laughs> but just think about this. What does it mean if everyone in this group right now made the commitment that until your child, up to and through, your child's conversion back to the church, you will never touch a piece of meat or anything more than one meal and anything other than water on Friday until you die. That's a pretty dramatic and bold statement. Sometimes I feel like we're afraid of taking bold action. But the funny thing is, this isn't supposed to be bold. Everyone did it 70 years ago. This was just life. And when it becomes life again, we realize it actually gives life. See, this is the funny thing. When you take away the secondary and tertiary things, you realize the primary things tend to fall away too. Because those things grew up in a Catholic culture and environment that supported the stuff. Right? Greek Catholics and Russian or, or Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, the whole Eastern Church, Catholic and Orthodox, they fast about 206 days out of the year. We fast like eight. That's sad. It shouldn't be that way. So every Friday, okay, now that I've stoked your guilt, <laughs> fasting for your loved ones. Number one, fast for the right purpose. You can lose a lot of weight fasting, but that's not why we're doing it. Mother Teresa, or Mother Angelica on EWTN have this great line. She said, it's amazing. We'll do things for other people, but we won't do for God. She's like, you'll fast to be skinny for others, but you won't be fat for Jesus. And she's like, that came out wrong. Uh, we fast for the right purpose. Why are we doing this? We are doing this because we want to be hungry for God and detach ourselves from the good things of this world so that they don't. Get, become an enemy of the best thing, right? Uh, we fast humbly and not be showy. We fast from non-food items. Okay, so let, let's say your blood sugar levels, you need a constant intake of whatever, right? Blood sugar, you know, I, I don't know all the things, right? Maybe it's a non-food item. Maybe you put away your phone on Friday. Maybe you give up TV for a week. Uh, I don't know if you ever participate in our Lenten projects where we do those group Lenten fasts where every week, those got pretty intense, as the weeks would go, in fact, I actually had a different one planned, and Stephen Lanahan was like, nope, nope, no one's going to do that. That's too intense. And it was. I wouldn't even have done it. But uh, when you do this, look at non, think about non-food items that you encounter every day that maybe you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm really attached to these things. I need to, I need to step back from there. Uh, fast in small doses, especially if you have never fasted before. Okay, don't say, I'm going to go without meat for the rest of the year. Like, 
Come on, number one, you shouldn't do that. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, fa- oh, I missed four. Fast from things you enjoy. It's, again, it's not because you hate those things. The coolest thing is if you are drink Dr. Pepper all the time because you love Dr. Pepper, and then you stop drinking Dr. Pepper for like a month, when you drink Dr. Pepper again, it'll be the best Dr. Pepper you've ever had. Whereas the 10th Dr. Pepper you have that day really isn't as good as the first Dr. Pepper you could have after a month, right? Like it's nothing, right? So when you fast, you get things back better than you had it when you were overindulging. Uh, number six, fast for your child and pray simply whenever you experience longing. So let's say you're in the middle of a fast, you get a hunger pain. Ooh, I could really go for those brownies. You say, Lord Jesus, I'm doing the sacrifice for the return of my son, daughter, niece, nephew, parent, friend, neighbor. Suffering. This is the, one of the things that people don't really talk about. Offer up your sufferings, people. St. John Vianney, whose feast day is tomorrow, so pray for our priests. Um, St. John Vianney had one all-consuming desire to help his parishioners become holy. Although many pastors then and now would undoubtedly share that mission, St. John Vianney was utterly committed to do it, willing to do whatever was necessary to attain it. He spent several all-night vigils. The word vigil doesn't mean the evening mass before the feast day. The word vigil means all night, right? So so like a knight, before he became a knight, would take the sword that was going to knight him, and he would kneel down in front of an altar all night long in prayer. And the sword, would he would hold it up in the shape of a cross. So this is what St. Jean-Marie Vianney said. My God, grant me the conversion of my parish. I am willing to suffer all my life whatsoever it may please thee to lay upon me. Yes, even for a hundred years, I am prepared to endure the sharpest pains. Only let my people be converted. Okay, this may sound crazy to the outside world, Brandon Vaught says. Someone inviting suffering on himself. Most of us do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering or even a little discomfort. But as Catholics, we know that our suffering is not pointless. So when you suffer, brothers and sisters, emotionally, physically, whatever it might be, do the thing that your grandmother told you to do. What did she say? Offer it up, right? Now, my mom always adds, offer it up for your many sins. I don't know what she was implying there, but... Right. Whoever wishes to come after me, this is the condition of being a disciple of Jesus. Whoever wishes to come after me must take up his cross, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For many parents, Brainabot says, that means picking up the difficult cross of your child leaving the church, but then carrying that cross on his or her behalf. That's hard, but the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Love covers a multitude of sins. It might be your love that covers a multitude of their sins. And three, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. It's not you. You can't accomplish. Only Jesus is the Savior, and he works through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, are you in the Spirit? Do you live by the movements of the Holy Spirit? I'll be honest. It's a lot easier to talk about Jesus than to talk to Jesus, right? It's a lot easier to talk about Jesus than it is to follow Jesus, right? And my favorite, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, he would talk all about that. He would say, you would have people that would speak endlessly about God. C.S. Lewis has this hilarious line where he says, you know, there are, there are uh, academic clerics in the Church of England who, if given the option to go to heaven or to go to a lecture on heaven, would choose the lecture, right? <laughs> and I thought that was so powerful, but that's, you know, the Holy Spirit, right? He, the, the, the Irish have a phrase for the Holy Spirit, they call him the wild goose, Right? Because Jesus says, you don't know where the wind's blowing, where it's coming from, where it's going. You just follow it. Ruah, spirit, go. Right? Go. Follow the spirit. The spirit is prompting you. Go and do something. Rely on him. I love this middle paragraph under rely on the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, our tips and strategies have a very limited chance of success. Sure, you might be able to manipulate your child through a well-placed question or phrase. 
But unless his Holy Spirit has already been stirring in his or her heart, your child will likely be resistant. Again, this book was written specifically for parents to children, but wide application. So what I want you to do before you pray for your kiddos is just say the three most dangerous words in Christianity come Holy Spirit. Invoke the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Where are you prompting me? Where do you want me to go? And then you say the next crazy thing. Holy Spirit, I want you to create opportunities right now, and I'm already saying yes to them. If you want me to go up to a homeless person and pray with them, I'll do it. Just put them in my path, Lord, and I'll do it. If you want me to go up and, and you know talk to someone who looks lonely at Mass, give just prompt me and I'll go. Right? Give the Spirit permission to work and let them work. You actually got to follow through with it. That's scary, isn't it? That is scary. But it's worth it because once you do it once or twice, you begin to realize God is real. He's not just a plaything of my intellectual life or my cultural values. Alrighty, we're going to take a brief commercial break to hear from the fine folks at Ascension Press. But when we come back, we are going to go through how to equip yourself with the Bible, the catechism, and Brandon Vaught has a whole collection of books and authors on specific topics so that you can enrich yourself to answer your child's objections. That's coming right up after these messages. Are you ready to know St. Joseph in a personal way? Father Mark Toops, adjunct faculty member for the Institute for Priestly Formation and presenter of Rejoice and Oremus, brings you In St. Joseph's Footsteps, 30 Days of Meditations. It may be daunting or challenging to get to know St. Joseph, but through In St. Joseph's Footsteps, you will not only get to know St. Joseph, but the Holy Family as well. Walk with St. Joseph through 30 days of meditations using St. Ignatius of Loyola's imaginative prayer. From the betrothal of St. Joseph to Mary, to the presentation, and more, you will walk through major moments in St. Joseph's life. To learn more about In St. Joseph's Footsteps, 30 days of meditations, go to ascensionpress.com forward slash joseph. Okay, now we're on to the next chapter. Equip yourself. Okay, this means that you have to have some answers when your kids have the questions. Okay, or your, your neighbors. What does the church teach? Why does the church say? What's going on with the Pope? Didn't this happen? What about the Holocaust? What about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? How about the Reformation? Right? You got to have something to say. You don't have to have all the answers. We do have to have some. <laughs> we do have to have some, right? So when you look at that time to equip yourself, you can't give what you don't have. You might be excited about your faith with brothers and sisters. Enthusiasm ain't enough, okay? You have to back it up with knowledge, okay? So the two go-to sources, the Bible and the catechism. How many of y'all own a catechism? Okay, most of you. No shame if you don't. Okay, it's online, right, for free. It's great. You got the big one. You got the... Pocket edition, <laughs> if you got cargo pants, uh, right? Now, these are great, the Bible and the Catechism. I would love, if you if you have never opened up or you open it up and you're like, what in the what? And you need help reading the Catechism, shoot me an email and I will teach you how to break this puppy down. I'm going to wrap up class here in a minute or two. But honestly, when it comes to the Bible and the Catechism, if you don't know how to navigate this, this has like maybe 70% of the answers that people are asking. 
Maybe not every answer, but it has a lot of them. And you can at least say to people, you know, why does the church hate gays? The church doesn't hate gays. You know that this is a moral question. Morality is covered in part three, life in Christ. So you go to part three, you know, because you're so smart, that the, every part, the four parts of the catechism, are divided into two sections. Section one, foundation. Section two, a numbered list. So for part one, what we believe, that numbered list is the 12 articles of the creed. For section two, on the liturgy and how we worship, that section two is on the seven sacraments. Part three on morality, life in Christ, that first foundations, right? Foundation, beatitude, your desire for happiness, virtues, vices, all that stuff. That's part one or section one, excuse me. Section two is the 10 commandments. So you have 12 articles of the creed, seven sacraments, the 10 commandments, and then that last part. Does anyone know what the last part is? Part on prayer, your personal prayer. So the mass is treated under the foundational stuff of liturgy and it's treated under the Eucharist. But, okay, if you want to understand how do I have better prayer, if you want to understand the relationship between vocal and mental prayer, you say, okay, that's part four of the catechism. Section two, what's that numbered list? Section two, the numbered list there is the seven petitions of the Our Father. St. Augustine said that the Our Father is a summary of the gospel and not only tells us what to ask, but in what order to ask, okay? And, okay, there you go. You have the adult catechism of the Catholic Church written by, uh, published by the USCCB. It's a very wonderful, readable. This is done, you know, in paragraphs. That is done more in like essay type format, more prose format. Um, the reason why I love the catechism, number one, it comes from JP2 and I love me some JP2. Number two, it was written by bishops from all over the world with their theologians and councils and editing and blah, blah, blah. Part four was written in by Metropolitan John Corbone, who was a French-speaking archbishop of uh, Beirut, Lebanon, right? So the Eastern Church, the Maronite, right? Which was being shelled during the Lebanese Civil War in the late 80s, early 90s, and he was literally in the bishop's residence in the basement taking shelter while Muslims were firing artillery rounds into his bishop's residence. And he's writing the battle of prayer, okay? So there's some power in these words, and it's awesome, and it's awesome. Um, but I would tell you that many Catholics, just open it up and read. Like tonight, if, you were, if I were to give you something to read, the first three paragraphs of the Catechism. This is awesome. I did an hour and a half podcast with a buddy of mine who was trying to do a podcast on the catechism. I did an hour and a half on paragraph one. There is gold in them bar hills, right? So I want you to take your time. Know your faith. If you have 10 minutes of prayer, why not 10 minutes of study, right? Then I could get you to be core members and catechists. And then I will milk you dry as a volunteer. <laughs> included on the handouts, uh, <laughs> included on the handouts are a handful of topics. This is all from Brandon Vaught in his book. Um, you know, things like abortion, annulments, atheism, the Bible, confession, contraception, death, divorce, the early church, uh, Eucharist, evil and suffering, Jesus, heaven, history. Okay, on and on it goes. There are books here recommended that if this is a topic that you have heard your child or your friend or whatever say, well, I can't accept the Catholic Church. It teaches X. You go find what does the church really teach in the catechism, and then you go get one of these books, and then you read it to understand why the church teaches what the church teaches. Okay? Does that make sense? So you need to start equipping yourself, right? You're evangelists now. You were baptized, you were confirmed. If you weren't confirmed, classes start on September 20th. You were 30th, you were baptized and confirmed. It's time. 
the confirmation, how many of you were smacked by the bishop? Okay. Do you know what that was? That was the knighting. That's the knighting where they take the sword on each shoulder. That's what that is symbol of. You're going to get hit when you go out into the world. It's symbolism of persecution. That's what that means. So it's like, okay, well, if I know that's going to come, I'm not trying to avoid it. I know it's going to come. Jesus says, blessed are you when they persecute you, revile you, and insult you on my behalf. For thus did they persecute the prophets who came before you. Rejoice and be glad. So it's like, okay, I'm right where I need to be. I'm not doing this for my own ego because if I was doing this for my own ego, I certainly wouldn't do this thing that everyone hates me for, right? And what you begin to do is you become motivated. Your, your most interior motivations become purified by suffering and you realize I'm actually doing this because I love you and I love you because I love him first. That's what we want. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.